morning again. I'm Barbara Curry. I want you to remember those readings and sit tight. While I love clothes, I couldn't fashion an entire sermon about giving, just discussing wardrobes. And so you're going to have to endure some economic references. Since I find economics enduringly fascinating, so much so that I'm able to hold the ideas of religion and economics together, I was reminded that this is not necessarily a universal truth. I hope the readings, particularly the reference to our vanities, whether clothing or whatever your own peculiar indulgence may be, minus food if you don't know me, I hope that those give you hope that you're not going to suffer the entire sermon. I wish to have us all consider the determinants of how much we give. In considering our own charitable behavior, we cannot escape our proclivities or human nature. And I don't propose we try, but instead be mindful of them. Unlike some religious traditions, all of whom tend to give more than Unitarian Universalists, we Unitarians don't assume our behavior now will guarantee us a more heavenly ever after. This might work against us in more ways than one, I suppose. In determining our annual donation, we're on our own to ponder and decide. One of the tenets of church giving assumes people will give about the same as last year. And in fact, that jives with behavioral economists' understanding. We humans are known for our irrational decision-making. We often elect the status quo rather than revisit a decision, meticulously weighing the pros and cons. We choose the easy decision, and often one that runs counter to our best interests. Let's say you're a new member still deciding on your pledge, or your circumstances have changed substantially, or you, like me, are given to over-analysis. So when the stewardship drive begins, I'm in a quandary. How much to give? What is fair? What can I afford? What if? I go back and forth, worrying and assessing. How will I decide? So I return to basics. What is giving? Is it transactional? I receive an equal or greater value from what I give? Is it pure altruism? Is it self-aggrandizing investment in prestige or public recognition, such as our name recognition on a building? Do we invest in our own lifestyle and culture when giving to a church or school or museum so that the venues we haunt are in keeping with our lifestyles? These questions come without judgment. They're valid and common determinants of giving. Other religions, as I noted, are associated with higher levels of giving. Perhaps members of other religious traditions discern a tangible religious meaning of value to church codified in religious texts that is absent in our faith tradition. Many Christians strive to tithe 10% of their income directly to their own church while acknowledging that the other 90% belongs to God and should be used responsibly. While researching this sermon, I learned a lot about stewardship and other religious faiths. In Judaism, tzedakah, righteous giving, is a duty or obligation to fulfill the will of God. It's essential to Jewish identity. 
To not give is to behave in a way incongruously with the Jewish faith. It's more than a commandment. It's an opportunity to devote yourself to God's purpose in the world so that everyone has the basic requirements necessary to sustain a dignified and decent life. Tzedakah combines the concepts of charity and justice and can be viewed as a way of cultivating a new perspective and a new way of being in the world. It presents an opportunity to transform a deeply rooted desire to take, deeply rooted, or deeply rooted desire to take into a desire to contribute. The Buddha said, when you see someone practicing the way of giving, aid him joyously, and you will obtain vast and great blessings. When asked if there's an end to those blessings, the Buddha said, consider the flame of a single lamp. Though 100,000 people come and light their own lamps from it so that they can cook their food and ward off darkness, the first lamp reigns the same as before. Blessings are like this, too. Islam has institutionalized stewardship practices. God is seen as the ultimate provider, and Muslims are granted ownership as trustees. The process of calculating zakat, the annual wealth tax described in our readings, invites you to acknowledge all of your wealth. The righteous man is he who gives away his wealth to kinsfolk, to orphans, to the destitute, to the traveler in need, and to beggars. I like to think of zakat as an identity tax. When you give zakat, you allow that annual levy to make you more, a more generous person. These religious traditions accentuate sharing, introducing instructing members to use resources to create a better world. They emphasize generosity, not scarcity. If I enjoy this, what shall I have to give to others? Such cherishing of others is the mind of the enlightened ones. All of these traditions focus on a communal approach to resource allocation. Even if by the grace of some deity, you have been granted a large share of resources, the resources don't belong to you. You are a steward of the resources, and as such, assume a responsibility to utilize the resources for the good of your community. So what about us? Have we renounced a communal approach to living and giving? More than 20 years ago, Robert Putnam, the author of Bowling Alone and How Religion Divides Us and Unites Us, first argued that giving and social capital had declined since reaching a peak in the 60s. Putnam investigated the nationwide trends thoroughly, and he revealed philanthropic generosity's rise and fall over 70 years from the late 20s through the end of the century. Even though income declined during the Depression, people continued to give, however, and Reagan's tax cut resulted in a one-year boost, but the downward trend resumed the following year. While this may bode well for the top 1% this year, Many others will receive no tax incentive from donating. Putnam went on to illuminate the connection between philanthropy and social capital. Social capital is defined as the number of meetings citizens attend, level of social trust, degree to which they spend time visiting at home, frequency of voting and volunteering. Forms for social capital can be formal, dues paying, meetings, structure, or informal, such as a bar or a cafe. Both constitute networks in which there can develop reciprocity and where there can be gains. 
Using different measures of social capital, we have also experienced steady declines in social capital since the mid-60s. Social capital, social trust, and social connectedness are all interrelated and directly related to giving. Social capital is a strong predictor of behaviors. Happiness and altruism increase with both personal and your state's level of social capital. Conversely, tax evasion is closely related to lower levels of social capital. Lacking trust, people don't want to comply with laws. They want, don't want to be suckers in collective action. Folks who believe the rich or the government are taking advantage of them are more likely to eschew cooperation, including avoiding taxes. Trust is also generational. Trust doesn't change much within a cohort over time, but successive generations since the 60s have lower levels of social trust. These trends in social capital are consistent across the country, across all civic organizations and activities. In other words, people vote less often, donate less to religious and civic organizations, and picnic less often with their friends and neighbors. Why do I bring this up? Does this describe this fellowship? I look around and I see voters, volunteers, protesters, card players, churchgoers, civic leaders, and picnickers. We are engaged. We trust and are trusted. Maybe, we, maybe we're overly engaged, overly committed, affected by economic factors outside our control. Before I hazard an answer, let's return to a less ethereal framework grounded in data and rigor, or rigor mortis, that is, economics. Economists posit that most people could double their charitable giving and not notice the difference. While I haven't seen that study, I do know that economic models obscure individual circumstances and ignore effects that many of us know to be true, such as gender bias or altruism. But perhaps there is a truth here that many of us could increase our donations. Forgive me while I turn to the math portion here. Consider the notion that we have approximately 170 pledging units. Let each month be assigned to one-twelfth of those folks, or 14 people. If those 14 people each gave an additional $225 annual donation, the team of 14 would raise $3,150. Repeat each month, and annually, we would boost our giving by $37,800, enough to fund our proposed budget shortfall. What does $225 mean to you? What is the value? Is it even a possibility, given your individual circumstances? Economic theory, and no less an authority than Donald Trump Jr. We're really scraping the barrel here. Might suggest we consider the opportunity cost framework, as he did in a recent reference in India. This framework is grounded in scarcity. If I donate another $225 to the fellowship, what else must I give up? If I give this to others, what shall I have to enjoy? Which is quite the opposite of the notion of generosity that I discussed earlier. 
Economists, known for avoiding trifling subjects like economic inequality and the power of altruism, assume you have allocated every last penny of your budget in order to maximize your personal satisfaction. To many of us, that looks like paying our rent or mortgage, feeding and clothing our family, saving for education and retirement, and paying for health care coverage. Maybe some of, for some of you, pledging already edges out savings or some other necessity. For most of us in this fellowship, we allocate some of our remaining income to pledge. Can we afford another $225 to give to our community, to give to our staff, to support each other? Perhaps your economic future is uncertain, scary. For many people, monthly bills and income ebb and flow. Uncertainty is rife in the economy, particularly with the rise of the gig or on-demand labor force and the decline of employer loyalty, loyalty and stability. Robert Reich describes the anxious middle class, one that has seen income fall over 25 years, vulnerable to forces they can't control, enabled by a government that can't or won't protect them. As Robert Putnam described, when people lose trust, social capital declines. But this fellowship offers an antidote to the economy and contradicts the narrative that others aren't trustworthy. We are here for each other and for others. We are faced with endless demands on our resources, from our basic needs to fulfillment of pleasures, gratification of our children and families, and also pleas for aid from every corner of the universe. Perhaps the latest request for aid emanating from your social network tugs strongly at your heart and purse strings. We have experienced dramatic increases in crowdfunding requests and therefore impulse giving. Research shows social networks affect giving. Donations are often small, less than $50, and given in the heat of the moment. Health-related and education requests garner higher donations, particularly those aimed at providing assistance to human beneficiaries. We here exhibit this behavior when we give to our community outreach offering partners. Fortunately, traditional and social networking aren't substitutes for one another. They complement each other. Informal and personal relationships, the kind we share here, whether via social media or traditional channels, are strongly linked to donations of both kinds. So, given the economic climate, the many demands on our resources, and our obvious social capital, how do we decide how much to give? I return to economics. No rolling your eyeballs here. We're going to start with the easy one, Maslow. Maslow's hierarchy of need conjectures that only after meeting our own basic survival needs do we move up the pyramid to higher order concerns, including self-esteem, respect of others, and morality. Interestingly, at the more basic level of safety, right above our physiological needs, morality also appears. Is morality, a system of values and principles of conduct, a more basic need derived from times when our basic safety was so tightly tied together that we recognized without each other and common mores that we could not survive? Or is it a deeper spiritual recognition that true stewardship of our community 
is found in the meaning and joy people derive from sharing generously. While you chew on that, let me regale you with news of the 2017 Nobel Prize winner in economics, Richard Thaler. He won for integrating psychology into economics. He proved we are imperfectly human when it comes to decision-making. We often choose the easy decision and the status quo. For example, we often give what we gave last year. Most people are likely to stick with the status quo, even if there are big gains to be made from a change that involves just a small cost. In this case, many of us intellectually understand that raising our pledge by less than $20 per month would make an enormous difference to the fellowship and would not dis significantly disrupt our overall budget. Yet we don't make the change. Another interesting aspect to Thaler's work that I find fascinating is the concept of fairness. That is, fairness matters a great deal. People are constantly looking for social and institutional cues as to what the socially acceptable courses of action are. Present someone with a circumstance in which a very selfish individual could take money away from another participant, and the first person adjusts his ideas about what sort of behavior counts as fair. We see that response in tax evasion. Well, Donald does it. And perhaps it enters into our pledge calculus as well. So how does all of this affect us? Can we make the decision to share generously with this community? Can we buck the status quo and increase our pledges this year? Can we trust in the fairness of others that we will all give from an attitude of abundance? I find inspiration in the stories of others, and I came across the story of Osceola McCarty, a washerwoman who gave away all she had, $150,000 for college scholarships, more than 20 years ago now. She commented, there's a lot of talk about self-esteem these days. It seems pretty basic to me. If you want to feel proud of yourself, you've got to do things that you can be proud of. Feelings follow actions. We are made whole by what we give. Or from our reading by Bonnie McClish a lot, I can't afford to help you because I need to buy myself more clothes so that I can feel happy for a few days. Who is that person? One way to find out is to ask yourself, how do I want to be remembered? I can just see the obituary now, loving daughter, wife, and mother. She was a snappy dresser and a big giver. And in closing, from the abundance of our faith, every time you work for this church and write a check, add or delete a budget line, make no mistake, make no mistake about it. You are living your faith. Is your faith smaller or greater? Are we here as an enduring, real, growing presence of hope, rationally formulating difficult decisions and risking and reaching out? Are we making the choices to follow our hearts, to find and expand freedom, to be loyal to our faith?